Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, Jeff. Great to see you. Get the water here. Well, hope everybody's doing good this morning. Hope you all had a great week. And if you didn't, I know you serve a great Lord. Amen. Gives us the ability to get through anything. Turn your Bibles, please, if you would, to the book of Samuel as we continue our journey uh, through the first book of Samuel. We're going to be starting in chapter 4. The last time I preached, I pretty much finished up chapter 3. So we're going to move on to chapter 4. So turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Be reading the first 11 verses, and that's where we'll be today. Looks like we'll be coming close to finishing up the dynastic kingdom of Eli. Uh, not quite yet, but we're, we're drawing close to the point to where this portion of the story will come to an end. Um, it's been an incredibly uh, enlightening period as we've studied uh, the lives of Hannah and Samuel and then the, the corruption of Eli and his sons. We see the dichotomy of the, of the two uh, as they go back and forth. You can see what true worship looks like. And what false worship looks like. And we can take that as the people of God very seriously. Not just looking at something from the ancient days and saying, wow, what a great story. How awful. Uh, but we can look at the New Testament church and really check our own hearts and examine our own hearts and see how we measure up to that. And how is our worship? Because at the end of the day, the vehicle of our bodies is what God has given us for worship. And it's our lives. It's everything that we do is really an expression of our love for him. And God cares very deeply for how he is worshipped. So let us go ahead and start in verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphak. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined the battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come in to the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, 
Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let us pray. Father, we just come this morning. We come into your presence, Lord, for the precious, holy, righteous blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come into the cleansing power of Christ's blood. And Lord, we are so thankful because of his blood, his perfect blood, that we are made perfect in your sight. Lord, let us draw an eye to you this morning that you'd be pleased to draw an eye unto us. Let us honor you with our hearts this morning, Lord. Let us put anything that would distract us or get in the way of worshiping you this morning. Help us to remove that. Set our minds right. Set our emotions right. Set our hearts right, Lord. That we, we can worship you, as the Bible says, in spirit and in truth. Lord, our greatest desire this morning is that you'd be glorified and that you'd be honored and that you'd be worshiped as you deserve. Lord, I commit this sermon into your hands. Lord, I appeal to you this morning that you would help me, Lord, a babbling fool for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in order to make sense out of this particular event and what we've just read, we need to understand exactly what caused this event. We have to go back to the beginning. We have to understand what is happening. In 1 Samuel 2.12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt and that they did not know the Lord. Interestingly enough, look at what they were doing. As they were priests operating in this fashion before the most holy God of Israel. And the Bible tells us very clearly that they were corrupt and they did not know God. They were false converts. Verse 22 says that Eli was very old and heard everything his sons did to all of Israel. And how they lay with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He said to them, no. My sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people sin. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord himself desired to kill them. Then a prophet comes onto the scene, which the Bible says, a man of God, and he denounces Eli. With these words, he says, Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon you and your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I'll raise up to myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And then Samuel comes on the scene. As God appeals to him three times in the night, finally he's commanded by Eli, Eli to speak what God has told him. And his first, his first prophecy is literally condemning the high priest. This is the introduction into the ministry of Samuel, which is contained in 1 Samuel 3.11. Then said the Lord to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel 
at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told them that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. First Samuel 2.30 says, I will honor those who honor me, but those who despise me will be disgraced. And in this case, as we know, they were not only disgraced, they were destroyed. Eli said to Samuel, what is the word the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. And then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel, which we see in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1 in our text this morning. And ultimately, at the end of the day, this is really a flower, a story of a flower growing out of a dunghill. A picture of absolute rebellion, idolatry, lust, corruption, pure debauchery, depravity, and darkness. But yet, not hopeless. Because on the opposite side of the spectrum, God is doing a marvelous thing in judgment. There is mercy. He's doing a marvelous thing through his prophet, Samuel. This is why I don't be discouraged. And even in our day, it's very easily to get, it's easy to get discouraged when you look around and you see the mess that we're in. You know, at times you can't even disseminate with the difference between the church and the false church because there's just so much out there that is kind of blurred and stained together. It's very difficult in our day to figure out what exactly is going on. Is this a real church that's fallen into sin? Is it a counterfeit church? I mean, what is going on in our world in America when we're dealing with the church? We see the ordination of homosexuality. We see all kinds of perversions. We see the accommodation of abortion. All types of things going on within the supposed body of Christ. These things should not be. And this is very similar to the situation in the times of Samuel. It was very corrupt. God took it very serious, so much so that he destroyed the kingdom of Eli. He wiped him out. How dare he go into the house of the Lord? How dare they go in there and pervert the worship of God? And today we look at the pulpits across this country that preach a false gospel. They preach humanism, life enhancement, anything but the gospel because they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to affect the tithes and offerings. They're more concerned about their reputation and the attention that they get from not only the people of God, but from the world. They're more concerned about filling seats. But we should be more concerned about preaching the truth. And this is the whole point in which Samuel comes on the scene. It's as if mercy and truth are met together, as it says in Psalm 85, that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In Matthew 4.16, 
Very similar case. When Christ comes on the scene, this is the people that sat in darkness saw a great light. And to them that sat in the region and to the shadow of death, a light has sprung up. And this is the case and the situation of the days that Samuel was living in. In all the corruption and all the darkness and all the chaos and all the confusion and all the immorality, a light had sprung up. God always leaves us with hope. And this is why we can't get discouraged and defeated as the people of God, as we're pressed by the wickedness of this world. We have to understand ultimately at the end of the day that Christ is our King and reigning Lord. And no matter what happens to us, whether we lose our lives, whether we die in the cause, so what? We are with Christ now and forever. Your life is victory. You do have the victory in Christ, whether you're living or whether you're dying. And this is why it's to the utmost importance that when we, when we come to God, we worship Him in spirit and truth, that we aren't hypocritical. We don't live in a state of hypocrisy. We don't play around with the Word of God. We don't become a bunch of comedians. We have to reverence the Word of God, reverence God again. The church needs to repent for their behavior. All the silliness that goes on, all the foolishness, becomes a big playpen. Certainly wasn't like that in years gone by during the Reformation, the Great Awakening. People appreciated the house of God. They appreciated the local church. They respected their leadership. They lived godly lives. They didn't play around. They didn't become worldly. And when they did, they felt the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they repented. This is the day we need to start this in our day. God spoke through Samuel. And they were not sweet tidings of cheer, but searing words. The Bible says none of his words would fall to the ground. The word was not a warning, but a promise. God was not warning Israel any longer. It was judgment time in which his word will come to pass irrevocable. They were fighting a losing battle, even though outwardly it seemed everything was in place for victory. See, warnings, you see warnings in Scripture where God will warn, like, like say, in the type of Jonah where he warned the city. When you see warnings, you always hear that God changed his mind. Well, ultimately, when God gives a warning, that picture is there, that God can allow people to repent. But when God promises, it's irrevocable. When he says he's going to do something, it will come to pass. That's not a warning. That's a promise. You're going to be judged. There's no way around it. I'm not warning you any longer. I've warned you enough. Now I am going to invoke my judgment that's irrevocable. And that's exactly what happens. Israel lost. They were defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And then the elders had the audacity. This is where it really gets rough. They says, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? You don't know why you were defeated in, in, in battle. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Does this sound like repenting? Does it say we should cry out to the Lord and repent of our sins, and maybe God will hear us, and maybe he will move on our behalf? No, it's saying go get an ornament. Go get something out of there. Bring it to us. 
and then we will win. And it's really, it's very hypocritical. The remedy suggested by the elders was to employ their God as a talisman or a charm. We know this was not endorsed by Samuel, but by the elders. They say, let's go back to Shiloh, the place that has brought about the judgment in the first place. This battle will be a fulfilled prophecy and judgment upon Israel, killing Eli's vile children who were never stopped from their wickedness and worship and from their lazy father. This whole idea, this whole picture here is, is all of the sin that has created this battle because God is using the battle. He's using his enemies literally to punish his enemies, to defeat Israel, his people. He's using his enemies. And it all happened where? Where did it happen? It happened in the place of Shiloh. The very problem where this started, you're going to go back to Shiloh? And you think you're going to get the answer by, by dragging the ark out to the battlefield? The place where you've sinned against God and you've rebelled against God? You actually think you can go in there and drag the ark out on the field and God's going to save you? How preposterous. What blasphemy to treat God as a token or a rabbit's foot or somehow some kind of lucky charm we're going to drag out to battle. First of all, all the problems that occurred, it occurred in the temple and it occurred during worship. All the fakeness, all the pretending, all the foolishness, all the, all the sexual immorality all took place there. No one repented, no one apologized to God, no one cried out to God, but we'll run right back there and we'll get that ark and we'll bring it out to the field. We have no problem doing that because why? We want to win. We want victory. We don't want to die. Caring more about yourself than you do about the Lord. You know, similar issues happen throughout um, biblical history. We see this in the days of Jeremiah. We see this where Jeremiah cried out. It was in uh, chapter 7, verse 3. He says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. He says, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Sound familiar? Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then have the audacity to come and stand before me in the house which is called by my name and say we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, saith the Lord. Same situation. They thought they could depend on a bunch of rocks and mortar to save them. As a matter of fact, in Christ's time, when his disciples were so amazed at all the temples and the beautiful buildings, to see these buildings, not one stone will be left because it's all going to be crashed down upon another. Don't get caught up and fascinated in worshiping things because they become idols and they will not save you. John the Baptist destroyed the confidence of the Pharisees and Sadducees that placed their faith in Abraham. Matthew 3 says, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up the children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of these trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is honed down and cast into the fire. 
Abraham will not save you. Jesus said, These people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, but honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. These are different stories, but they illustrate the same truth, the same principle. That we can sing all day. I think it was D.L. Moody or Spurrier, someone says, the, the greatest time of the day that church, that church people lie is during worship. And that's sad because really, in our day, a lot of what we see today is an idolatry of worship going around what they call worship. A lot of it isn't worship. I don't want to stand here with my arms raised as an elder of this church saying, God, you're my deliverer. I love you and worship you. And then walk right out this building and live like the world. Live like I don't even know him. And have the audacity to come in here and sing and shout and run around. And in all reality, it's just hypocrisy. First Samuel 4.1 says that the Israel, they went out to battle. It says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Interesting note, though, um, the name Ebenezer actually means the stone of help. And it was not given to the place so designated till a later period when Samuel set up a memorial stone there to commemorate a victory that was gained over the Philistines upon the same chosen battlefield after the lapse of 20 years. Which we find in 1 Samuel 7.12, the verse states, Afterwards Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shen. He named Ebenezer, explaining, The Lord has helped us to this point. Before Samuel sets up his stone of remembrance, which heard Ivan so beautifully preached this morning, the Israelites are set to fight the Philistines once again. After two prior defeats, we can surmise that the morale of the soldiers was down. They've been defeated twice in battle. And as the battle begins, the scriptures say, the Lord thundereth loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by the Israelites. At this point in scripture, Ebenezer becomes the name of the altar. The meaning does not change, but the power in it is brought to light. Samuel had been praying for his people to let go of their idols and immoral ways. Once his prayers were answered and the people repented and they defeated the Philistines, the land was restored to the Israelites. And there was peace between the Israelites and the Amorites. All these blessings deserve an act of remembrance. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture because this is literally 20 years later and the Philistines are finally beat even though they were the Israelites were held in captivity and the ark was stolen. They didn't lose heart and God didn't forget them. And God brought about a great victory. The abruptness of the narrative as it goes right into uh, chapter 4 and verse 1 where it says Israel went out to battle. It seems very abrupt from ending in chapter 3 going into verse into chapter 4. It's like boom, now you just see them going into battle. It's very quick. It's right on the scene. It's very intense. It just starts up with an intensity. But the abruptness of the narrative may be explained because the historian only wishes to give an account of the war so far as it bears upon his main subject. And that is the fulfillment of the prophecy against Eli's house. 
It wasn't so much for us to look at the war and try to figure out the war and what was happening and the brutality of it all, but to look at it as the prophetic judgment of the living God in which he spoke and said he is going to judge Eli's house and destroy his sons. And that's exactly what he did. It's a wake-up call. You know, when you think of Hophni and and Finus, you think about their types of, uh, of, of people and how they how they live their lives, I, I, Proverbs ten ten really gives a good definition of those types of people. He who winks with his eye causes trouble, but a pratting fool will fall. Hophni and Phineas were pratting, really pratting fools, with a passive father whose sin of omission triggered the wrath of God. But they lived their lives as if nothing would ever happen. It's like living in such a way, in so much corruption, so much idolatry living in such a way in utter and absolute rebellion towards God and think nothing's going to happen to me. I can continue to keep on living like this. It doesn't matter. Even for the people of God. You may be secretly living in rebellion towards God. You may have a secret sin that you nourish and cherish and that you hide from everybody else, but you're able to put on some kind of costume to show everybody how holy you are. But in reality, you're living a duality of lives. And this happens. And we've got to remember that God sees it all and he'll only allow it to go on for so long. His enemies, sometimes he allows them to fatten up for the judgment. But for his people, he will sanctify you. And if you don't humble yourself, he will humiliate you, unfortunately. And that has happened to me before. Let me just say this much. I wish I would have humbled myself. Because being... Humiliated is a terrible place to be, but God used it for his glory. Not only for his glory, but for our good. God's word always comes to pass, both his promises and his judgments. And here we see God using the means of his own enemies, the Philistines, to bring judgment upon the house of Eli, which is very interesting because God uses people he hates to literally bring judgment sometimes upon his people. God will use some of the most unusual means that we never expect to bring about the sanctification to his people. It's usually areas that we don't necessarily expect God will use. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, it says, But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is really clearly Paul saying, listen, you know what? For the unrepentant heart, for those that aren't repentant, those who are lost, listen, you may think you're getting away with your sin. You may think, listen, I can do all this. I can call upon God to call down the wrath of God upon me. Look, he does nothing. But the Bible is very clear that you are storing up wrath until the day of wrath. It's piling up. And on that day when you stand before God, it's going to literally be an army of sin that are standing against you in judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, As it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes the judgment. When you die, you won't come back as a tree or a log or a frog. You won't be reincarnated. You won't go into the bliss of Allah. 
the Bible says you'll stand in judgment. It's point for a man once to die, then comes the judgment. These are very sobering, sobering, sobering words because for those of us who are not in Christ, those of us that don't know God, or those of us here today who continually rebel against God, know this, there's going to come a time where the Scripture says that you're, you'll take your last breath and you will be in eternity. It's a point for a man to die once, then the judgment. And you can't come back. Hell has no exits. When you fall into the wrath of God, it is forever. But in Acts 17.31 it says, Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and that is Jesus Christ. I would appeal to you this morning that hearing these words and allowing the words to change us, to transform us, to hear the word of God. And if you're in rebellion, repent. The goodness of God leads to repentance. God is a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He pitieth his people and also sinners. Jesus came and literally died for sinners. I mean, the reality that God himself would come and die for sinners shows you the value and the cost of redemption. Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. One popular commentary says, In a patriarchal system of government, the elders or the heads of the families are the natural authorities. There's always been an authority, a group of authorities, an element of elders in groups that made decisions. Even the days of, of Moses, all the way up now, obviously, even into the New Testament church. Even before the Exodus, Israel possessed an organization of elders to whom Moses was directed to, del- to deliver his message. We have here a clear trace of popular assembly, which seems in all times to have existed in Israel. Such a body appears to have met for deliberation, even during the Egyptian captivity. Interestingly enough, you think, who's the elders? I mean, you hear about them, like... Who are these people, right? Well, that's who they were. And they made the decision to go back to Shiloh and get the ark, which gives you an idea kind of the sin, not only of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, but the sin of the people at this time were very, very corrupt. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from the ark of the covenant and the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And listen to this. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant. Interestingly enough, when they go fetch the Ark of the Covenant, what do they get along with it? It's almost like a fishing lure, right? I mean, they get uh, Hophni and Phoenix to follow that out to battle. God draws them out, and this is how God brings them in to judgment and where God will ultimately smite them. The ark is brought out. The two sons come out as well. And guess what? The place erupted with shouts of triumph. So much so that the Bible says the earth shook. And this actually terrified the Philistines, thinking that the Lord had actually come in to the camp. And based upon the history of the Hebrew nation, which wasn't an isolated incident, Israel actually had a reputation. Why? 
Why do they have a reputation, right? Because of what God did, right, in Egypt when he brought them out of Egypt. That ultimately was a huge um, situation and movement of God such so that the nations around definitely knew about it. In 2 Chronicles 20, 29, it says, And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, cursed is us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, they said, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who, listen, struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. They had a reputation. Terrifying reputation. But the Philistines, not backing down, said, be strong and conduct yourselves like men. You Philistines, you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men. And fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and there was a very great slaughter. And there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That is a total equivalent of 34,000 Israelites killed. Now, just for a moment, as we're, we're closing, this reality of the sin of Eli, right, and, and, and his two sons, really brought judgment on 34,000 others. And obviously we know that God in particular had a reason for delivering judgment upon his people for their idolatry. But the reality is, at times, because of your sin and mine, we can wipe out others. Their sin caused 30 4,000 Israelites to die in battle. Think about that. This was God's means of judgment. And other people suffered as well. Think about the accountability of elders. Think about this reality of your own life. That if you don't repent of your sin, you continue to rebel against God. It's not just hurting you. It's hurting the body of Christ. It's very serious. You've got to understand that your sin isn't private even though at times it seems like it. But ultimately, it affects you and how you think, how you behave, and it bleeds into everything else around you. Think about King David. He did the same thing, but in a different way. The census he took close to 10 months, and when it was completed, the report stated that Israel had 800,000 fighting men, and Judah had 500,000 could handle the sword. David was guilt-stricken and prayed for God's forgiveness. God gave him three options for punishment. David chose pestilence, which took the lives of 70,000 people in one day for David's sin. 70,000 people in one day for one man's sin. Think about that for just a moment. How is it any different than today? We look back at these days, we see how God brought judgment. We understand the New Testament. You know, we don't necessarily, we do see a judgment of a couple of people who lied in the book of Acts. We get that. But the reality is we don't see this, you know, this large judgment of just a multitude of people dying. But people are dying spiritually. When the pulpit fails, when we fail here, 
We fail the people of God, and the people are no longer salt and light in the world. When the pulpit dies, the church dies. Do you understand that? The pulpit leads. It leads nations. It all starts from right here. And this is why the Bible says that God judges the house of God first. Judgment comes to the house of God first. God holds them accountable. God holds us accountable. Because the world's not salt and light. It's not the president's responsibility to change the world and make it better, a better place. It's the Christians. We're to be salt and we're to be light. Quick couple application points before we close here. Number one, this whole story revolves around blessing and judgment. Obviously, the blessing of Samuel and what God has just utilized his life, the glory of God. What a, what a beautiful story in the life of Hannah. You know, she was barren. She cried out to God. Just a beautiful life of prayer and contrition and brokenness. And God heard her and blessed her with a child. Not only a child, but a prophet. Samuel, what an amazing testimony and legacy of a godly life, right? We also understand as well that on the other hand, you know, those that rebel against God, God will vindicate his name and he'll vindicate you. Understand that. You may not be vindicated on this side of eternity, but you will be vindicated at some point. Those that have harmed you, those who have hurt you, those who may have stolen from you, those who maybe have slandered you. All these things where you're saying, man, this guy's still in ministry, this guy that did all these things to me, or this person so-and-so who's really hurt me and hurt my life and all of this. There will be justice. God will vindicate you. You understand that? It doesn't seem like it right now because everything just seems so present all the time. Nothing's going to change. But the reality, God will not allow his name to be blasphemed. He will judge the wicked. He says in Romans 12, 19, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. The people of God have always suffered at the hands of wicked men. False prophets, false converts, false religions, maniacs, and God-haters. It's never going to change. This is clearly seen throughout all of Scripture, from the beginning right up until the book of Revelation. But we're reminded with a beautiful promise this morning in Romans 8, 18, for Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. All your pain, all your struggles, all the adversaries, all the challenges, all this junk that we see, all of our fretting, all of our stewing, all of our anxiety, all of these things won't even be remembered when we come into the glory of Christ. The impact of the glory of God is so powerful that we'll need new bodies in order to be able to withstand it and to live in it. Remember this. Put this in your brain this morning. Download this into your heart. That this life will be over soon and you'll come in contact with the glory of God. God has given us a clear commands on how we're to conduct ourselves in worship. God will clear his name even if he needs to completely remove others to do it. You know, these people that, did, that, that commit such atrocities, even in the name of Christ, you see some of these churches that, you know, have really um, become amazingly corrupt and apostate. 
They think they can run, but they can't hide. God will deal with these people. And we can rest in that. We don't have to be continually angry and messed up all the time to the point where we become dysfunctional. Yes, we should be angry at the fact that someone is blaspheming our Lord. We should expose, Ephesians says, expose evil. We should do that. It shouldn't be to such an extreme where it ruins your testimony, though. It can become idolatrous at times because you become so obsessed with what's going on in the world, right? Every second of the day, we're checking our social media posts. We're checking YouTube. We're checking this. We're checking that. We're checking this. And, you know, we're just so obsessed with what's going on. But we need to turn our obsessions towards Christ. Remain in his word and remain steadfast and not to worry. Remember Ahab, it was foretold that he too would die in battle. He thought he could thwart the hand of God's judgment by hiding and pretending to be somebody else. Then we know an arrow seemingly found its way through Ahab's armor and false disguise, along with his vile wife Jezebel, who was basically eaten by dogs. You can imagine they thought they were getting away with it as well, right? I'm going to dress up as somebody else. I'll go out into battle. They don't even know it. Boom. Arrow takes them out. We need to examine our lives this morning. We need to examine our lives. Examine our hearts. In Psalm 139, 23, the psalmist cried out to God. It should be our prayer this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves as whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Be a good influence. Hophni and Finus, they were not good influences at all. Their dad wasn't a good influence at all. It made the people of God sin because of their influence. You want to have good influence, be consistent. Don't be unstable. Seek Christ. Be a doer of the word. Don't be someone that says something but does another. And we're all guilty of it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not up here on my high horse, my soapbox, trying to act like I've done anything right. I've made a million mistakes and screwed up millions of times. But my heart's desire is not to. I want to be godly. I want to be holy. I want to live in a way where I have a good reputation. Not idol- like, an, like an idolatrous thing, like a title idol. But I want a reputation where people can trust you. You have integrity and character and you're honest. It's a beautiful thing that's not really seen a lot today. Be a man and a woman of your word. If you say you're going to be somewhere, be somewhere. Don't be all over the place with your life. If God's put you in a place of leadership, lead. Do what God has called you to do. Don't be wayward. Don't be all over the place. Be consistent and be committed. God blesses commitment. God blesses commitment. We should be the most committed people on the planet. Even if it's uncomfortable, we need to be committed. Be a good influence. What you don't overcome in your life Those of you who have children, I do, they'll have to contend. What you don't beat, what you condone in your home and condone in your heart, your children will ultimately at some point have to contend with it. As for ministers, 
If we don't overcome the sin in our own lives as well, things that we shouldn't be doing, which we've all failed, the church will have to contend with it. Look at these stories we've told about other leaders who failed miserably and the people paid for it dearly. Let us be mindful of that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the story, Lord, of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, Lord. And we see two totally different lives. We see the life of Samuel and the dynastic kingdom of Eli as it just absolutely failed. And you completely and totally abolished and removed it, Lord. Lord, let us today with with sober hearts, Lord, Cause us by your power to be awakened to the reality, Lord, that we still, this morning, have breath in our lungs and we're still able to repent, Lord. Grant us the ability this morning to repent of our sin. Our lack of reverence towards you and your name. Our behavior during worship, Lord. What we've made of it. Repent of the church at large in America, Lord, who has literally turned the church into a circus. Lord, we ask you to be glorified in this country, Lord. That you would bring revival to the church. That there would be a great awakening in the world. That souls would be saved. Thousands would be swept into the kingdom. Lord, we are your people. Time is short. Life is like a vapor. Help us to utilize the short amount of time that we have left for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.